I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Picture the scene. It's October 2006, you're 23, and you've scored a job working at a record label. A label whose bands you've been listening to since you were 12. In a few weeks' time, a record you've been working on from a band you're admittedly not wild about is coming out. One day at work, a review comes in of this record from the most influential music site there is, and the score they give this record is zero. Not only that, but the review itself is scathing. Not because the words they've used are harsh, because they haven't used words at all, but what they have done is really making you laugh. And so you sit there trying to stifle laughter as this critical savaging slowly makes its way around the office. That label was Atlantic Records. That band was Australian rockers Jet. That record was their 2006 album Shine On. The website was Pitchfork. And the label employee, as you've no doubt guessed, was me. And the review, rather than words, was a YouTube video of a monkey pissing into its own open mouth. Now, this review arguably wasn't the finest moment of anyone involved. And it's not really representative of the thousands of reviews Pitchfork has published over the past 20 years. But it's one of many moments and many reviews that have told me something about the role of a review and of a critic and of the impact, positive or negative, that they can have, and even about what a review can and cannot be. I'm Adam Brooks, and this is Read to Like a Four, the podcast all about critics and reviews. I've loved, hated and been fascinated with the way culture, art, food, theatre, music, comedy, film, life is evaluated and commented on by journalists for years. And so this podcast was born. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different critic about reviews, the past, the future, the point, as well as hearing about their first, worst and best reviews. Unexpected reactions from artists, untold stories, what makes a good review and how cultural criticism has had to adapt and change. Initially, the focus will be on music, but as time goes on, I aim to speak to reviewers and critics of film, comedy, food, travel, TV and beyond. Today's guest is... Mark Richardson. Here's why we're talking to Mark. Uh, I'm the executive editor at Pitchfork, and I've been writing about music for about 20 years. Um, I've been writing reviews uh, of records for about 20 years, and um, I still write criticism for Pitchfork and uh, edit edit reviews on uh, on a regular basis. Pitchfork is arguably the world's most infamous music site, and home to reviews that have boosted and perhaps even ended careers. We talk about technology's impact on reviewing, his 20 years writing for the site, and yes, that Jet review. If you enjoy what you hear, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review on iTunes. As you can imagine, reviews mean a lot to me. Please follow the show on Twitter at ReadsLikeA4, and please drop me an email, readslikeA4 at gmail.com. 
I'm also on the lookout for great writers and critics to speak to in future episodes, particularly women of colour, LGBTQIA writers and reviewers operating mainly outside of music. If you fit the bill or you know someone that does, please get in touch. So here we go. Thanks so much for taking a chance on a new podcast. Now, let's hear from Mark. It should be fun because, you know, I think the history of music criticism is definitely different in the UK and the United States, which is partly maybe what will be interesting. You know, like I feel like the traditions and um, how people approach it, just having worked with, you know, writers from from the UK over the years. I don't know. It's just it's it's just got kind of a different history to it. And, um, you know, people there grew up on the NME and Melody Maker and people here grew up on spin and rolling stone and um yeah and i mean just because of the way that um or so i guess the age i am and the, and the proliferation of the internet i probably found out about pitchfork around the same time that i found out about spin and rolling stone like i'm i'm a right. a, a strange case where i kind of i came into american music journalism while all of those things were still relevant i guess right sure of yeah. course yep can you remember the first thing you ever reviewed i guess we're talking 98 yes around there? Yeah, it's 98. I can. It was um, the Modest Mouse album, Lonesome Crowded West. Okay, nice. And uh, would you if, you, if you went back to that review now, would you write it differently? Or do you think that uh, <laughs> you, you nailed it first time? Oh, man. Yes, I, I sure would. Actually, it's, I've written, you know, I, I, I think a lot of writers are embarrassed by, you know, if they look back that, that far and see what they've written, um, they're, they don't like what they see. That's definitely true of me. I would say it's not one of the worst reviews I've ever written, but it's it's uh, it's not very good. Um, but uh, I think in terms of assessing the quality of the record, I, I really loved it then, and I really love it now. Um, so I think that part of it would still be there, but hopefully I've improved in a writer as a writer in the last twenty years. <laughs> um, yeah, I noticed that you that, that you you started writing for Pitchfork twenty years ago. Now it still seems almost something of a a novelty that somebody has a 20 year career in online, primarily online music journalism. It's so true. Um, so if this isn't too broad a question, uh, what changes have you noticed with regards to reviews in that time, uh, both in how they're written and the importance that people place on them? Do you, do you mean as a whole or with pitchfork? Uh, I, I mean, either and both really. Right. Well, <clears throat> I would say that the biggest change, um, with reviews especially in that time, and it's clear, too, from the content of the reviews, is that 20 years ago, reviews were still written from the perspective of what am I going to spend money on? Um, and there was always an element in writing them of the consumer guide part of it just worked a little bit differently because people still looked at reviews as something that I want to catch up on and, and, and read before I go to the record store because I want to see if I'm going to spend $15 on a CD, mm-hmm. I want to... I want to be sure that it's, that it's decent. And um, in 1998, uh, it, it was 1998, uh, weirdly, was one of the last years where that, that was vir- true for virtually everybody. A year later was Napster. And so if you had, you know, broadband access, um, you could start downloading things for, for free the, the next year. But in 1998, it really was a matter of um, 
looking to reviews to find out things that you might want to spend money on. Mm-hmm. And I remember pers- myself, uh, and I think this is fairly common, I used to carry around in my wallet a list of records that I had read about that looked interesting so that when I was in the record store, I could go through and see what see what was there, see what was I could find used or, or whatever. So I'd have a list of 20 or 30 records, most of which I had built from from reading magazines and zine reviews. And, and I'll see something is like this looks looks like something I would like. Um, and I think the connection then between the record review as a form and a way of, you know, people using it as, to, as how there's. They would, they would spend money was was pretty strong. And I think in the years since, there's still a matter of how you want to spend time. But I think um, I think the record review, in some ways, it's a positive thing actually. But I think the record review in the time since has become more about deepening someone's understanding of the record mm-hmm. itself and less about um, buy this or don't buy this. So I, that, I feel like that's been a big change. Do you think it's less of a less of a a preparation then for for record shopping and more of a kind of supplementary information. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I I think also, mm -hmm, yep, I think so. And, and also just helping people to hear things differently, you know? Um, And like, to me, a perfect record of you these days, someone's is someone will, will read it and then go back to the music and be like, Oh, I hadn't really thought about this, but this pointed out something that, that I had missed, and you know, now it's enriched my experience of the record. I, that's that's the ideal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, Pitchfork recently, uh, I don't know if, if all your reviews are still up there, but it looks like you're uh, you're heading for your five hundredth uh, fairly soon. Um, yes. This doesn't have to relate to uh, to a review that you wrote necessarily, but what's the most uh, extreme or unexpected response to a Pitchfork review that you can remember? The most extreme, I would say especially because it was more recently, it's interesting because it was hard to have extreme reactions in the pre-social media days. Mm-hmm. You know, social media has obviously changed record reviewing immensely. You know, it's, it's, I would say more significantly than even um, Napster is social media has changed how people think about reviews, how people write them, um, how, you know, it's, it's, it's just night and day. Um, so because the reactions now can be so strong, but, the one that really stands out for me is I reviewed the uh, Ryan Adams cover of Taylor Swift's 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't think it was very good. Um, and I said so. And um, Ryan Adams himself got upset and tweeted about me and the review. And it was really one of the rare times where for two weeks afterwards, I didn't really look at Twitter because it was just an endless stream of thousands of angry Ryan Adams fans mm-hmm. who were saying terrible things about me. And, you know, that in itself wasn't so terrible, but it gave me a little bit of a glimpse uh, into, you know, people who deal with that all the time in much worse ways. Um, so um, that was very extreme. Mm-hmm. He was very upset. His fans were very upset. Um, I kind of thought I was, I, I gave it a low score, but I kind of thought I was pretty reasonable in my um in my uh, assessments of it. But um, so, so that, that, that stands out as the most extreme response. And that's the kind of thing that if it, if I had written it in, in, you know, 2003, maybe I would have gotten 10 emails or whatever, you know? 
Um, but this time I got, you know, 700 ads to my Twitter account saying. Right. It's hard to know if that's kind of a validation for the power of, of reviews or if it's yeah. just because of the social media pylon that happens now. Right, right. Uh, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the decimal point. Uh, so Pitchfork yes. obviously is, is known for having a relatively specific scoring system, uh, rating records right. to a decimal point. As you've been writing for Pitchfork for so long, presumably you were around when that was introduced. Uh, I wondered uh, if you had any insight as to the reason for being specific enough to have one decimal point, but not going any further than that. What, how right. was the decision made that, that is, that's a good way of evaluating records? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I would say the standard um, metric is probably the star system, five-star review. Um, which, which typically gives you uh, 10 different levels of, um, of, of assessment, right? Um, and then, you know, there's the five-star review, there's this, the one to 10 scale, which I know Spin used for a while. Spin had a couple of different um, systems over the years, I think. But um, I think, honestly, for us, you know, I, I wasn't there at the moment of, of its inception. That was Ryan Schreiber, who's Pitchfork's founder. Um, he came up with the rating system. But I was there very early on, and it, really the idea, I think, was as simple as if you see something got an eight, two things could get an eight, one of which is completely amazing and one of which is solid, and they both got an eight, and um, this was a way of you know making more granular distinctions. And it's funny because it's... You know, people have been talking about Pitchfork's rating system for years, rightfully so, and it, it does seem kind of silly. There's 101, um, you know, different levels of, of, of ratings you can give. But um, it, it's also, it's become weirdly kind of a standard uh, of its own on the Internet over the years. Like, if you look at Metacritic, it rates things according to that single decimal um, by averaging things. And I think it's, it's oddly become, it, it seems silly at the time, but I think it's actually become a way of, aggregating you know reviews that's that's a lot more common i think rotten tomatoes doesn't that use a percentage system yeah so that's so that's ultimately 100 points as well so um i think it's become more mainstream over time but it seemed yeah. pretty out there it the seems also that it's been it's been adopted by outlets like the ones you just mentioned that are dealing that know they're going to be evaluating thousands of pieces of work and right. so therefore you know you can't necessarily have 200 records that are all rated the same uh, yep, so exactly. yeah, maybe people that, that kind of you know review five or six things a month don't need to be so specific i'm not sure right sure okay um speaking about the kind of the impact of pitchfork reviews as well on one hand obviously a, a good review could well a, a good or bad review can affect the fortunes of a piece of music internationally arguably more than than a review anywhere else on the other right. hand I guess part of the purpose of reviews is to be fun and to entertain. So how do you balance the weight of, uh, you know, the kind of the impact a review is going to have, but also the need to make it kind of enjoyable? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in a, in a perfect world, we're definitely aiming for both of those things. Um, like there are, you know, we do really like the idea that like the goal is always to have our review if not be the last word, be the, be kind of the definitive review. I mean, that's, I'm not saying we always get there or even get there most of the time, but that's really the goal entering into it, especially when there's a big record that, you know, a lot of people are going to talk about, um, to have, you know, we want to go into it saying like, I want our review to be the best and most interesting, most entertaining, most insightful review that runs anywhere. 
Um, and then that that's for higher profile stuff. But then sometimes things that will make a bigger impact will be things that are not so high profile that kind of introduce a new artist to people. Um, and if those get high review, then it's like, wanting to justify it for people who, you know, now may be curious about this article and kind of frame how, how they experience it by having somebody who's really smart talk about what's interesting about that record. But I think, you know, um, we, we published so many reviews and our database is accessed for years and years. You know, I mean, I, I happen to look at, we have all these, you know, systems for measuring, um, traffic on pitchfork and, um, you know, I was looking at, I, I happen to be, I, I looked at my own name because I've just written two things in this past week that, which is unusual for me to write two things in a week now. And I was like looking at how they did. And I, then I was, so I pulled up my author name and I saw that some of my reviews from six, seven, ten years ago are still getting, you know, a couple thousand people visit them in a month. And um, so for us, like um, having them be something that people can refer to as a reference for years is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we, we definitely construct them so that we, de- we want them to be entertaining and interesting, but also hopefully useful over the long haul, mm-hmm. um, which which perhaps something that's written more as a take of like, what does this feel like this week doesn't have that same approach um, so or doesn't have that same resonance. So um, I don't know. That's 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 kind of how we think of it. Okay. Um, and how is a decision made as to uh, whether a record is getting a review? Obviously, there's acts that are kind of that are large, but perhaps not relevant to Pitchfork, and, and small, right. obviously. Um, so, how is how is that balance struck? Yeah, so we have um, we review 25 albums a week. Um, plus, we we do a Sunday review every Sunday, which is a kind of a review, a look back at a classic record from the past which is a slightly different category. So you could say we review 100 albums a month, and we really try to... It's a pretty complicated and involved and time-consuming process that involves a lot of conversations between myself, managing editor Matthew Schnipper, our reviews editor Jeremy Larson, Ryan Schreiber, the founder and uh, editor-in-chief. And um, we're constantly trying to take in everything that's happening in terms of what we hear about what's coming out, we have 60 or 70 regular contributing freelancers and they're telling us what they think is interesting. Um, and we, so we take this huge mass and try to filter it down and, and, and say, you know, what, what is the stuff that it really feels like we need to cover in order to give a coherent pitchfork take on what's going on in music at this moment. So we are, we are constantly reevaluating that um, because you know, over time, you know, certain genres or scenes become more relevant and it seems like we should be covering them more closely. And then sometimes um, certain genres and scenes lose some relevance and we don't necessarily need to follow every twist and turn of it. Um, Just as an example, I think we have something like probably 35 Guided by Voices reviews in the archives. I mean, if you add all Robert Pollard's projects, it's probably 60 or something like that. And if it was 2004, it, we would have been felt compelled to review every EP. If you put out a three-song EP, you know, we, with, with, when we have to review it, he's, he's so relevant and of this moment. It's like now, well, we still review a new Guided by Voices record, but we don't necessarily feel compelled to review every last thing he does because it's not 
it's not completely in conversation with other things that are going on in music at this moment. So mm-hmm. kind of have to be reevaluating those things all the time and thinking about what's, you know, more pertinent. And then there's, there are areas of music, some very large and vast areas of music. The pitchfork has kind of let others handle the, the most notable of which is being like mainstream country music. You know, mm-hmm. we've never, we've never, we've never really, the, the roots of that really have to do with, um, the interests of, of the editors who were, who were never followed that closely going back a long time, myself included. But at this point, you know, we do still touch on bigger, more, more significant releases that seem like they, you know, have, have bring something to bear on the music scene as a whole, but we're not at a place where we're going to be delving deeply into that because we just, we don't have the history with it. And we, at this point, it's, better for us to let other people do that and focus on things that that feel more like uh of interest to our audience so it's just, it, it's kind of us thinking about what we're interested in what our writers are, are are coming up with and then our perception of what our audience is following along with and we basically sift through all of that and try to arrive at you know the assignments and then plus there's the matter of like every day we gotta have four or five new re- re- reviews running the next day so sometimes it becomes a matter of like all right let's get this in there too so yep, that yep. that also happens um, not that I'm inciting or encouraging this, but uh, are you often on the receiving end of uh, bizarre pitches, tactics, stunts to in order to get reviews? Yeah. What per- uh, what percentage of submissions would you say typically gets reviewed? If there's 25, 25 new record releases a week, that's out of yeah. the pool of how many would you say? I would say I kind of feel like so. If we were, I'll, I'll think of it more in terms of a month. But if we review a hundred in a month, I feel like there could be something like. 2000 you know that we're getting an endless stream of emails um and and i'm sure there's a lot more beyond that that we never get pitched on or or, or publicists hitting us up you know i mean these days you know these days like just to take an example there's a lot of interesting music being made um on Bandcamp and the electronic sphere Mm -hmm. and like a lot of those artists don't have publicists or would never even think to have a publicist they're just making they're making albums and putting them up you know um so it's endless. I mean, I don't even, I wouldn't even know how to guess how much, you know, music is being released in a month. I mean, there's, we touch on a little bit of metal, but, you know, we're, we're reviewing like 0.1% of the metal records that are coming out at a given moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's like, uh, it's just endless. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book as well yes um oh, so, cool. yeah so you obviously wrote a book as part of the 33 and a third series about uh Zyrica. am i pronouncing it right the flaming Lips yeah that's record. correct yes so just for people who don't already know this is a record that came on four cds designed to be played at the same time um so i mean i may be answering my question and asking it but what was it about that record that made you think this is the one that, that deserves a, a, a book uh, written about it was it to do with uh the way that it requires being listened to the sort of injection of technology into the process yes so i i found it immediately fascinating i was already a flaming lips fan so um i, I think they were a very good band in the 90s and so i was i had been following along and when this came along, um, basically what really drew me to it was the idea that it enforced a very specific kind of listening and it enforced a kind of communal listening that is somewhat unusual for listening to records. Um, you know, so the idea is it's, 
you know, there's four CDs, they have to be played simultaneously. And so to listen to the record properly, it requires at least four people to get together and they have to bring at least four stereos to do it. So it's this very elaborate and difficult process. But when you actually do it, which I've, you know, I've listened to it properly 20 times in my life, probably. Um, it turns out to be this really fun experience because you, it, it's, it's, it, it basically is an album that created, it enforced a situation that's kind of like a happening or performance art that you have to create yourself in your apartment. And, um, and it, it's a really special experience. And to me, everything in music throughout the nineties was about come, becoming more convenient and music becoming more ubiquitous and easy to access. And that, mm. you know, accelerated tenfold or in the, this, this century. But, um, so it was, this was moving completely against those trends. And it was saying, you know, instead of making this easier and, um, more portable and more personal and more customizable, we're actually going to make it very difficult. Um, something that has to happen in a very specific space at a very specific time under very specific circumstances. And I just found that uh, just so interesting. And so in addition to, to loving the album as a piece of music, all the stuff that surrounded it um, just really got my imagination going and, and fired me up. Cool. And it, it reminds me of two things as well. One is that it's kind of, it's almost like the way that people prefer listening to a side of vinyl because you are interrupted mm -hmm. four times a record, but taken to the nth degree. And the other yeah. thing it reminds me of a little is the last, um, the last album campaign I worked on when I was at Warp uh, for Boards of Canada, um, Tomorrow's Harvest, where Josh, our, our US, uh, the head of the US at the time, organized, organized a playback from an airstream in the desert. So that was uh, a, similar, yeah. a similar feeling that you kind of had to really go to some effort to experience it, but it was quite unique yeah. when you did. Yeah, the context of listening is so interesting to me. I mean, it's just endlessly fascinating. And, you know, Zarika was an example of that taken to an extreme. Yeah. Was it strange when the book was released being in a position of people reviewing your work? It was. Um, there's a couple of interesting things about that. I mean, it was it was quite fun. You know, I, I followed along and saw what people were giving it on Goodreads. And, you know, I read I read the comments there. Um, it did get a little bit of press and had some write-ups and, and weeklies and so on. Um, and I, for the most part, it got some pretty good reviews. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it was interesting. I mean, it was kind of what I expected in that, you know, if it was criticized, um, I felt bad, <laughs> you know, so, um, so that, that does happen. And, um, I, I was no different than anybody else. And I expect, um, well, only that in your position, I expect people have slightly less sympathy. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, but yeah, that, that, that was an interesting experience to be on the other side of that. Um, I read that, that what, well, we kind of talked about it with, with the book, but that one of your particular interests amongst music is the influence and use of technology. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered to what extent does that affect uh, reviews or, or your reviews or Pitchfork's reviews? For example, are an artist's intentions easier to deduce now they all have tw Twitter accounts? Or does, does the prevalence of cheap or free recording software mean the bar is set higher than it was in, say, 98? Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's definitely interesting because, um, one, right, you have so much more of a window into what the artist might be thinking, um, especially if that's information that they want to share. Because, um, you know, if, if, if there's somebody who's active on social media, you'll get a sense of, of everything they're doing. They might be posting updates when they're recording something. Um, so you have a, the amount of context that's available to you is infinitely higher if you want to access that, um, which I think 
as a whole has been a very good thing. Um, but for me, you know, it's interesting. I, everyone kind of has their own specialties as a, as a music critic. And for me, I feel like mine is a little, a little bit more on the sound end of things where I'm thinking about specific sounds and the emotional content of sounds and arrangements. And so I think I'm probably slightly less context dependent than some other writers. So I, I, I feel like my style of writing, which is a little bit more based in aesthetics and, um, and, and the details, the sound itself is probably not quite in fashion in the same way as it once was, because now there's, there's so much context that surrounds a given piece of music. I think that, um, people focus on that more than they used to for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about 20 years ago, you might have a story that was told to you by the press release and, um, that might be it, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you worked in warp stuff like boards of Canada. I didn't know what those guys looked like for years. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't know hardly anything about them. You know, it's like, I, I knew they were Scottish. Um, and you know, but it's like, it, to me, it was the album cover, the sound of the music, the context that I knew, you know, it was on warp and that was kind of it, you know? Um, and I didn't really crave that much more. It's like that. I mean, to be that, honest, to, we didn't know much more and we were working on the thing. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, so I think it's a, it's a big shift, you know, and there was a period, especially in the early social media, uh, era. So 2011, 12, there was a period where artists very self-consciously constructed this kind of mysterious persona. It was almost like a post burial kind of thing. And, um, a few artists like uh, The Weeknd and How to Dress Well put out music where it was like, what is this? Who is this person? You know, and um, I feel like that's that, that had a little resurgence of that around that time, because I think because social media suddenly made the identity of the artist so much more ubiquitous. But yeah. I feel like that's that's almost become impossible now. You know, it's and like it also seemed quite strange that it felt like people were doing that not because they were naturally disinclined to do promo or give too much away, right. but because it became marketing in and of itself. Yes, it was a technique. Yep. Yeah, it was a technique. Yeah, that that uh, became a cliche pretty quickly, actually. Um, what trope or habit would you remove from all reviews if you could? Well, let me think. Um, uh, well, there's a, I, I once made a list of uh, things that I didn't want Pitchfork reviewers to do, um, and there were things that, that people reached for very quickly. That, like, There are certain things that when, you can tell when people don't have ideas and they kind of fall back on, on this thing. Um, one is, I mean, this is, this is very specific, but um, I think the one thing I always cut when I'm editing a review is if someone talks about, um, talks about a record and says that it, the album cover reminds them, it captures something about it. You know, it's okay, like, some, yeah. just like it's, you know, if they say, uh, you know, just, just like it's cover, it's washed out and color, you know, dreamy and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I can tell you're writing this review and this cover is sitting on your desk or it's on, on your laptop screen and you're, you're struggling for something to think well, about. And also, wouldn't it be more notable if the cover was completely at odds with the music? Yes. Like surely, but yeah. it's, it's meant it's, it literally yeah. is a visual representation on yeah. account of it's the cover. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and there's another very common thing where someone says the first track sets the tone, da 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 da, mm -hmm. and it's like, why why wouldn't the first track yeah. set the tone? You know, it's you like know, that's how is the fifth track going to get a chance to yeah. set the tone? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, 
I mean, the, the worst, the worst thing that I, gosh, I hope it almost never happens on Pitchfork is when people review a record by basically just going song by song and saying, mm-hmm. you know, it starts with this and then comes this and then comes this. And then, and I always want to say, well, take a step back and you're, you're reviewing an album that exists as a whole. Let's talk about the whole and you can talk about how the details support the whole rather than just going through detail to detail, piling up all these observations about how songs sound. I mean, these days, especially, um, you really don't need to go into, you don't need to narrate um, how, how, how songs go. You know, this comes in, then the bridge, then it builds to this climax. Mm. It's like, I, I can listen to it if I want to. You know, it's like, I want to hear your ideas about what, what this music is doing. You don't have to explain to me, you know, what happens after the chorus kicks in. Yeah, and I think it's not exclusive to music criticism either. I was talking to someone who uh, reviews film, and he was saying that you know the, the trope he would remove is is when people effectively forget they're writing a review and start writing a synopsis. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so to, to take it from the negative to the positive, if you could pick one review in Pitchfork's history as an example of what a good review looks like, which would it be? I mean, you can obviously pick one of your own, but that's uh, that's your choice. Sure. Um, let me think here. Well. I'm going to have a hard time picking one review in the history of Pitchfork, so maybe I'll just pick one that's fairly recent that I thought was really amazing, um, which was um, it was a review by Ben Ratliff, who was a, a critic at the New York Times for many years and became uh, a freelance critic last year. And he wrote a Sunday review for us last year of, um, of Thelonious Monk. And I think it was uh, Monk's Time was the name of the record. But... Um, Actually, Thelonious Monk, Monk's music. When he wrote that, I, I, I think writing about jazz is hard for some people. He's obviously done it his whole life, and he's a total expert. But it's it, it made me think about um, jazz writing in particular. I, I've written quite a, a fair amount about jazz, but I, I always yearn for it to be something that can has a lot of information and insights for people that are not necessarily versed in jazz. Cause I think a lot of jazz writers write for other jazz critics and other jazz fanatics. Mm-hmm. And they forget that a lot of people are new to this music and they want to hear what's interesting about it from their perspective. So I always encourage critics to have insights for people who are deeply versed in the music at hand, but also have a tone and approach to it that allows somebody who's coming into the, for the first time to understand, to understand what's going on. And this review of Thelonious Monk that uh, Ben Ratliff wrote, it was, it's just amazing because I've been listening to Thelonious Monk for 30 years and I suddenly, the way he described what he was doing, it opened up a new way of thinking about um, Thelonious Monk's approach to playing in composition. And I was like, which seemed impossible to me. And it was, so there was so much um, insight just in terms of how the music worked. And then, but it was also completely, it was written so that anybody could understand it. It was not a specialist uh, type review. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that, I was like, this is a, this is a masterpiece. You know, it's like he uh, in which makes sense because, you know, he's a he's he's a very, very accomplished critic. He's written a lot of books about jazz and otherwise. But um, I would really encourage someone to go back and look at that and say, try to get at what look at what he's doing and try to emulate that. OK, I'll make sure we put a link to that on our uh, social media. so people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We can pick it up very yes. easily. Um, I noticed the tagline, the most trusted voice in music, started cropping up recently, uh, especially when Pitchfork appears in Google results. Uh, I, don't doubt, yes. I don't doubt that it's true, especially on an international level. I wonder, if, is that something that's come from a quantifiable study, or did someone in the office just say, hey, do you know what, we're the most trusted voice in music? Well, um, I think that's been around for three or four years. Um, and it, it's basically that kind of tagline. It gives you something to shoot for and something to, to base, uh, you know, to build some of your ideas about what the magazine is around it. Um, and so for us at that moment, it was, it was very much about what do we have to offer the world, you know, um, because there's an endless amount of music coverage. There's, um, you know, so many sources of, for, for information, you know, there's, uh, it's just what makes pitchfork special. And so, um, we thought, you know, one, we, we bring, a lot of rigor to how we report things. And, um, you know, we, we, we really try hard to adhere to classic standards of journalism and, and, you know, and, and figure out if things are actually true before we report them and, and report them accurately. And two, we have, um, we have, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about our opinions and what we're offering the world in terms of our criticism and, and what we think has value. So, um, It was, it was basically a way of uh, trying to explain our relationship to our audience, which is that they, they come to Pitchfork because ideally we're doing things uh, in a way that's, um, you know, richer and uh, uh, more considered uh, than other places are. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's both reflects what we want to be and it kind of serves as a motivator for us too. Yep. Um, so looking at the exact number uh, of reviews, I've, I got you down as writing 486 so far. I mean, right. I actually have, I've written more than that, but some of them stretch back into the 90s when some of our archive from before 99 is not online oh, okay. anymore. So. I thought I was catching you on the eve of a landmark, but it's probably already been passed. Um, so <laughs> yeah. of, of those, which was the most enjoyable to write? Okay, so let me think here. Um, well... I'll, I'll tell a story of one that was um, a very one that was very. Uh, this, I'll say this was most enjoyable. It's it's a 
also possibly maybe the most popular review that I've written. But um, so in 2000 and it, it, I'm going to say Animal Collective, Meriwether Post Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very enjoyable to write because it was this hugely anticipated record. Um, I was a, I was a massive fan at that moment. I, I thought the music they had made that decade was just fascinating. And every there was so much anticipation about what that album was and, and what it would sound like and where they were going to go. And I remember getting promos were very, very hard to come by because at that point, that was kind of the height of the, the leak era, you know, where um, it, they didn't have a good system for watermarking and um, basically, pub, I guess you were there. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I think I think probably mo- anything you could apply to uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion, uh, I could probably uh, double in Vecatomest. Yes, exactly. So, um, so, so I, I had this promo and it was, it was really interesting because... When I wrote that review, um, I had nobody else to talk. You know, these days, everybody gets a promo at the same time, or it leaks, or, or whatever. Or, or most often, people write reviews based on when it goes up on Spotify. There might not even be a promo. So um, you're very aware of what everybody else thinks at the same time. But for this album, I wrote that review, and... No one else I knew had it. I didn't know how to share it with anybody. There might have been one other person in the office that had it. And um, I think I got the promo in December, so I actually listened to it over our break, and I believe the review ran right after we came back in January. But um, it was a really special thing because I felt like they were at the peak, uh, their peak. I thought the record was so good. And I really got to write about it without knowing what anybody else in the world thought of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like a comp- I had no cues about um, whether anybody else thought it was good or, um, uh, you know, like I, it was it was very much me and the music, which is a very fun experience that I, I, I almost would never have now because now you can instantly call up, you know, go on Slack, see what, see what the other writers think, or, you know, go on Twitter and see what everybody else thinks. And it's like that for, for that record in particular, it was a peak moment for them. I, I'd been writing about them for several years. I love the album, but I was also, it was, it felt like it was just me and the music. So actually sitting down and writing about it, I took, I probably took, I, I wrote something like 4,000 words of notes and, um, some of it was very stream of consciousness, but then just editing that down. And I wouldn't even say the review is that good, but um, it definitely made an impact because it was kind of the first big review and I, we rated it very highly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, 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 that felt kind of special. That was sort of a moment in time and that it was definitely a moment where I was deeply excited about music too. Um, there's some discussion online about uh, the disappearance of some reviews and, and, and sure. the amendment of scores of some. Um, what are the reasons that a review might become ripe for removal or for uh, amending? Yeah. Well, so I, 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 I'm, I very much welcome the chance to set the record straight on this because okay. um, it's, it's, what's out there isn't quite accurate. So, um, so essentially, 
we redesigned the website in 2008 or nine. So I guess it was about 10 years ago. Um, and at that time, you know, we've gone through three or four major web designs, but when we redesigned it in 2008 or nine, that was the first time that we had artist pages on Pitchfork. So we had pages that were landing pages that collected all of the information about a given artist. And so when we were doing that, we noticed, okay, um, I'm looking at the Beck artist page and, um, here we have reviews of all of his albums and for his last five records, we have these, you know, edited 900 word in-depth reviews. And here's our review of Odelay from 1996. And it's, it's a 75 words and has a couple of stupid jokes in it. And it's sitting, it's sitting in this artist page with all these, it's to us. It was like, this is a completely different thing from a completely different era. It's not how we think of pitchfork now. It's not up to our standards. It's not, it's not even the same thing. You know, it was like just this drive by couple sentence summary. Yep. So at that time we said, we're going, we're going to take down um, the reviews from 1999 and earlier, most of them, not all of them, but um, so we took down all reviews from, from that period, uh, like 10 years earlier and going back to 96. And um, so those, those we just took down from when we launched our redesign. In some cases, too, there were issues with when you redesign your website over and over, like album art and, um, you know, how things are formatted on the page. It can get kind of tricky with that, too, over over the generations of redesign. So we took down tons. I mean, it was probably a couple thousand reviews at that time. But we've never actually taken down a review otherwise since then. You know, we would never just from the archives. So it's like everything else that's existed is still there but we have what we have done is we welcome the chance when something's reissued to um review it again especially if the original review is poor or you know not very well considered or poorly written or whatever um mm -hmm. so just an example that one that people brought up a lot andrew wk i get wet um i think that original that originally got I think a 0.9 or something like that. And um, the review was basically, I would say that was a polarizing record even at the time. And this was just one, ex it was at one extreme. And I think over time, um, a lot of people started to really like the record, including I think the person who wrote the review originally, which was Ryan Schreiber. Mm -hmm. And so when it was reissued 10 years on, we're like, okay, we're going to have someone else review this and talk about how it is a great record. You know, it's like, yes, many people involved, including the writer of the original review, changed their opinion on it. And so we actually, I think, have both those reviews in the archives, but um, so you can you can still go look at uh, both of them. But um, so and, and now also, too, with um, Sunday reviews, um, we uh, we have an opportunity to revisit old records, you know, that maybe review in the 90s um, that, you know, it's just there's just no comparison of like as a piece of writing, you know, it's like a review. Yeah. It's a score, but there's also like the writing, the thought, the, you know, and, um, you really welcome the chance to, to do that kind of stuff. Right. Cause I, in the first, the first time around in many cases, it was not remotely done right. But, um, so I don't know people that obsess over scores and like what pitchfork gave a record. I totally understand it. I mean, to them, it's like, Oh, you gave it a six and now you're giving it a nine. But, um, I, I don't worry about that at all. I mean, to me, 
to me, having a good review that's actually reflects the music is much more important than what was said 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Um, is it ever frustrating, given the the attention spent on records, that for a lot of people, the first pitch rock review that comes to mind is the jet shine on uh, monkey pissing in sure. your mouth? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That is a classic that comes up all the time still. <laughs> That I should look at what kind of traffic that re- that review gets because it's amazing how much it's still discussed. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, I'm. I think at times, um, especially then, something that's kind of a playful gesture. I I, I think that's kind of fun. Um, it's it's much harder to do these days, uh, and I think with good reason. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything recently. Uh, the only thing I can think of that even comes close is the uh, the cat emoji for uh, Meow the Jewels. That's about yeah. There was that, and there was yeah. one other one which was um, the remember the Pope released that record. Oh yeah. So the Pope released that record, and we gave it a three point one six for John three sixteen, <laughs> and um, which you know actually felt appropriate uh, in terms of how, how its relative merits, but. Um, so once in a while we get an opportunity to present itself where we can do something like that. Um, I think I, I, I really can't see that, that jet review ever being replicated now, um, partly because it's interesting. I mean, at that moment, Pitchfork was um, very much kind of like the scrappy underdog and um, the site's relationship to the world of music, even relative to something like jet was as very much as like this, small thing punching up, I guess you could say. But -hmm. I think now, um, you know, we're we're part of this large company, Connie Nast. We have, you know, dozens of employees. Um, You know, it's like for us to, it just, it just wouldn't have the same, um, it it just, it's that that kind of stuff is so contextual in terms of the publication, its relationship to music at the time. And now it would just feel like, I, that specific gesture, I can't see us doing now, but I think, I, I think it's still fun that it happened when it did, um, and it's, it it, ha- it has an amazing lifespan. I can't, I can't <laughs> even, I can't even. Every once in a while, we'll have to replace the YouTube because, the, however, it was uploaded, it was, uh, okay. you know, it'll. Uh, but that that YouTube's not going anywhere. But but we do replace that once in a while, and um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, what, I don't. What mind fun! That, what fun that we're still here, sixteen years later, talking about yes, maintenance. Exactly that is involved right. in keeping that review online. Yep, um, so I just got one more thing before before we wrap up. Um, this is something I do to everybody. I apologize in advance for the, for okay. the slightly cruel nature of this. I've taken five uh, phrases. Uh, some are from your reviews, some okay. are from other people's. Sure. And uh, I, I want to see, uh, see if you can, you can spot your own voice amongst these. Okay, so this is the first one. The piano track serves as a kind of tent pole on the record, pulling it back whenever it threatens to seem too much like a collection of sound design without any particular shape. That's me. That is you. Uh, that's uh, Nicholas Jar's Pomegranates review. Yes. Um, you might not notice at first because the music is typically ebullient, smeared with colour and couched in his characteristic wordplay and deadpan humour. I would say that's not me. That isn't you. That's Philip Sherborne's review of Panda Bears A Day With The Homies. Okay. Uh, the third one. Here they've taken some of those ideas and explored them at length, filling the tracks with details that can take some time to soak in. On headphones, you can explore the tracks one motif at a time, as if each were a small landscape. That's me. That is you. Uh, that's uh, Boards of Canada, Tomorrow's Harvest. Really. Okay. Uh, fourth one. 
She's not dealing in respectability politics, nor is she militant. She chooses when to peel back her skin to vulnerably expose her most inward feelings and character and when to wear it proudly. That's not me. That's not you. That's Colin Robinson's uh, premature evaluation of Solange's A Seat at the Table for Scary Gun. Uh, Okay, last one. This is four out of five. I'm very excited. Um, Lyrically, at least, they border on twee, but it's interesting to hear such naive sentiments coming from a singer who sounds so worldly and strong. Yes, the record flags in its final quarter, but that's not such a big deal. That's me. That is you. That's uh, the affair. Yes, yes to you. You're you're our first perfect five out of five. Yeah, honestly, it's it's funny. I, I recognize my voice, not necessarily in good ways you know what i mean it's like i uh just certain phrases i've used a few times so uh, okay i picked up on it <laughs> all right well it's still a victory uh, uh maybe a hollow victory if you've uh, if, if it's because you recognize the phrases so easily but it's yes. still a victory yeah awesome uh, that's everything thank you so much oh, for talking to that was well. very fun so there we have it, the first episode of Reads Like a Four. My sincere thanks to Mark Richardson for taking the time to speak to me, uh, Emmeline Lawford, who put together the artwork for this episode, and Jed Shepard for valuable podcasting advice. Uh, join me next Friday when I'll be talking to Peter Robinson, Mr Pop Justice, who's also written for every uh, UK music magazine under the sun, I think, The Face, Q, uh, Enemy, uh, The Guardian, and many, many more. I'll be speaking to him about media training, how to stage a comeback, the lure of hatchet jobs, and the uh, end of the enemy's print edition Uh, so do join us next friday for part one of a two-part chat with peter robinson Uh, that's all from me you can catch up with me on twitter Uh, my account is at adam nonfiction or the podcast is at reads like a four if you're a critic or if you've got a comment or a question about the show then uh, the email is reads like a four at gmail.com that's it from me thanks so much for listening and i will see you next friday Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.